Oh my god, so it is podcast three on Brujas World. Brujas World. Today we are excited to talk about the launch of our fall collection. We have, we started, Brujas did not start producing merchandise until halfway through the second year. So 2.5 years in, we printed our first hoodie. Um, And now we've gotten to the point where we've done a line called 1971, a line called Soft Serve, and our third line for this fall is called... Each One Teach One. Each One Teach One. And... um, so today on the show, you have the hosts, the resident hosts, um, Ariana Gill and Ripley Soprano. And Ripley will talk a little bit about why they chose the name Each One Teach One and as it relates to the qualities of this fall season. Yes. So we basically got into a little, a little disagreement about this because first Ari was like, no, nah, we're not going to call it Each One Teach One. What did I want to call it? I wanted to call it like co-ed or something. Yeah, which also is a good, I mean, definitely is, resonates with the idea behind the line is that it's a a co-ed or a all gender spectrum line. Um, But I was really wanted to emphasize calling it each one teach one because the idea behind the line is to have a collection that kind of bridges off of 1971 and focuses on the school as the focal point for controlling and disciplining citizens and teaching citizens to be good. Um, If you think about kind of the way that Foucault talks about the school, the hospital, the museum, the prison system, um, the prison. (laughs) I'm not kidding. (laughs) We'll get into the summer camp thing soon. But when you think about the way that Foucault talks about those specific institutions, they're ones that are supposed to teach citizens um, under the social contract to be good, to be true, to be beautiful, to engage in beauty um, through the arts, through intellectualism, through um, you know abiding by the law. And so we wanted to focus on the school for one of our collections, um, and I thought that Each One Teach One would be a really good name for a line because it's actually part of a, a philosophy that goes back to during um, sl- during slavery in the U.S. when obviously people who were enslaved were not allowed to learn to read and were like specifically barred from learning to read. And so one of the ways in which people taught each other various things um, including how to read and write in English was just by from one person to the next, which comes from you know this idea each one teach one. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of part of the idea behind that, and it it is a larger philosophy behind popular education, which is something that Ariana and I both really value. Popular education being again one where one person can teach, one person has the capacity to teach a group of people, anything, because knowledge is held in everybody about some aspect of their experience. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just jumping off that really quick, our passion for popular education and also paired with the language that we chose around 
how we talk about institutions, particularly the phrase, secondary phrase on the line, um, burning down and dreaming up, and also is a continuity of a reference from our 1971 streetwear piece, which said fire to the prisons. Um, the idea of burning down institutions does not mean we are book burners. We're not interested in shaming or deintellectualizing or doing away with education as a concept. It's just how those things exist in institutions and exist alongside a process of discipline, which become unhealthy and actually alienate people who need the tools and the skills the most, given the positionality that, you know, they were born into in a, in a world of hierarchy based on race, class, and gender. And so that being said, I think it's uh, really interesting that we are providing a syllabus alongside the collection, this collection. So the syllabus or course title um, for this fall is called Burning Down and Dreaming Up and was drafted by the genus sitting across from me. <laughs> yes, we did put together a syllabus for the line, which is like really, really unique for a streetwear company to release a curriculum. I would say it hasn't happened before. NBD never been done. Yeah, <laughs> NBD never been done before. Never yeah. been done ever. Um, so yeah, it's really, really amazing. It comes from lots of different courses that I've taken and also just like conversations that Ariana and I have been a part of. It's specifically designed as an online course, which anyone and their friends can take. And it's, yeah, it's really, really exciting. So basically the idea behind it is that you start, you, there's one session, it's broken up into sessions instead of weeks because we know that people won't all be like doing the course at the same time necessarily. And we want anyone to be able to do it at any time, even though the course does start September 25th, which we're very, very stoked about. Right. So you'll be, so you'll be able to get your you know, each one teach one looks and get the curriculum sent to you. And yeah, so basically the first session starts with the articulation and analysis of critiques of institutions. Uh, And it starts with Foucault's Discipline and Punish, which obviously we always reference. Um, And then it has uh, Angela Davis's Women, Race, and Class. And then there is... um, kind of a video that talks about universal design and disability. So we kind of have like an intersectional, like anti-capitalist analysis at the very beginning to front load that. And then it goes into um, three sessions where we analyze prisons, then we analyze schools, then we analyze hospitals and psych wards and their relationship to institutionalization across, you know, intersectional identities And then at the end, there is a section that's specifically devoted to prefiguring the world that we want. And then there's, with each session, there's a unit activity that people get to do together. And then we're hoping that people will send it into us and we'll present that each quarter in a zine that we're going to put together and again, have available online um, and hopefully send out to people who request it. Um, So yeah, we have so much coming up and we're really, really excited, but the curriculum is like beyond. It's like... It was like a dream to be able to be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we should talk a little bit about language and even the, the concept of literacy as being a tool of liberation because it wasn't until my senior year of college at Oberlin that I w- was exposed to Discipline and Punish um, in my History of Black Incarceration class with Pamela Brooks. And that the access to the language around 
in theory around a word like discipline from the perspective of a scholar like a philosopher like Foucault really gives you a framework for looking at the world around you um, in a completely new way. I've actually, there's been a few texts in my life that I was like, oh, after that, like I, ch- I was a changed person. After I had discipline and punished, I was a changed, my mind was a changed mind. And the, obviously the amount, the amount of control that slave masters and or landlords, teachers, people who are in positions of authority that and and those positions of authority being positions that exist in order to maintain the um, subordinance of other groups cutting off access to the ability to make deep connections between one's material reality and the way that institutions function and mm-hmm. how and how that there's a relationship between that is so um so important for for young people and that's truly our target audience you know to get young people to think before the age of 21 which was when I first read Discipline and Punish hopefully or maybe they are 21 maybe they're 22 maybe they're 25 it doesn't matter it's just the understanding of the concept of a ledger the concept of a ruler the concept of a um, prison format a prison architecture for controlling people's bodies controlling people's minds controlling people's movements and controlling people's chemistry literally is i mean it's the kind of thing that once you engage from a critical perspective you'll i mean nothing really means anything anymore you just literally look at every infrastructure of our society and you're like i can connect almost any element to to a deeper concept of discipline and so on that note you know we've had the great pleasure of uh, amazing educational experiences but it doesn't mean that regardless of how good our experience was at Oberlin or at Beacon, those same measures of discipline and control were being, you know... Worked on us. Worked on us, slowly, and it's a process. You're literally born into a, a slow process of discipline, not just from your principal, not just from your parents, from every little interaction that you have with when classes start, when classes end, when you're allowed to leave the school, when you're allowed to be in the courtyard, when you're allowed to go out to lunch, when you're allowed to... Every little element is a whole process of discipline. Yeah, so... I'm just going to tell a really brief story because this whole thing reminded me of what I did my senior thesis on, which is funny. I, I wouldn't have thought that this would come up at this time, but... We're going to talk a little bit about our own experiences with school in New York. But first, I just want to tell this like really interesting story about what happened in 1969 during during the like what was literally has come to be known as the strike that changed the city, which is when the United Federation of Teachers in New York City went on strike. Um, In 1969, the United Federation of Teachers was an entirely white Jewish organization. It, It was probably not entirely white Jewish but like it was it was a Jewish institution the leadership was Jewish and white and the 
population of the school system was obviously majority black and brown. And, you know, 1969 was years after Brown versus Board of Education was passed. And Brown versus Board of Education, for those who don't know, was the piece of legislation that made it, you know, quote, illegal to have segregated schools, um, de jure segregated schools. And it's it's seen it's considered to be one that desegregated the South. Um, it didn't desegregate. Uh, it the exact language in the piece of legislation was basically um, with all deliberate speed. Desegregate schools with all deliberate speed. With all deliberate speed basically means at your own pace. But, you know, for anyone who's actually stepped foot inside of a school in the past 50 years, I mean, there's been tons of research that also proves this. School school systems across the U.S. are more segregated than they've ever been. But wow. in New York City, New York never comprehensively desegregated schools at all. Right. There had been efforts by lots of black and brown organizations, clergy members, um, the NAACP, which at the time, you'll never believe it, was actually the Harlem-based NAACP was led by Ella Baker in 1969. She had been a part of many um, organizations and councils that were a part of the Department of Education and uh, had been a part of urging the the school board to desegregate and had basically, after 20 years, given up. But what happened then was that um, parents and clergy members got together and said to the Board of Education, which now no longer exists, it's now the Department of Education, um, if you're not going to comprehensively desegregate schools, then we just want control over our own schools. And for about nine months, there was an experiment in the Lower East Side, in East Harlem, and in Brownsville, where schools were taken over in specific in those districts by by parents, um, specifically like Black and Latino parents. And they re- they fired teachers, they revamped curriculum, they taught classes, they hired paraprofessionals to work with teach to work with you know their students, and that was an experiment. It was called the like it was called the New York City experimental school districts. Um, so that's basically what I did my thesis on, and what I want what the connection is specifically was back to what Ari was saying about literacy, which was even though those districts were really well known for having like super radical curriculum that focused on like African dance and like, you know, anti-Eurocentric mathematics and like all these different things. What was really important was that like students were getting attention from like, they were getting the kind of attention from teachers and the kind of like support from parents that like white kids always get in their schools. And like, what was like, even just like basic functioning literacy was like way more radical in those environments than like there would have been. But basically that was the demand by, by black and brown parents at the time was like, we want the kind of control over our schools that white parents have in their schools. So that sort of is, a, I think, a good place to transition into talking about our own experiences. Um, Ariana and I went to the same high school, uh, as we've said before. We ended up going to different colleges. But, um, yeah, we have so many stories. We have so many stories. Yeah. It's been really special working with people who we went to school with um, because there's a deep bond of the world before bills and 
jobs and stuff like that, um, which was such a pure um, experience of, you know, self self exploration and intellectual and philosophical exploration untainted by the realities of um i'm not i don't know just the of clout <laughs> instagram there was no instagram in our in high school i can't even imagine going to high school with instagram that would have been horrible yeah it would have been really traumatic it would have been horrible i i i had a hard time in call in high school because um i went to a notoriously experimental drug uh, a school with a notoriously experimental drug culture and i wasn't into drugs i was into punk and straight edge culture um because of my own trauma being around um adults my whole life who were heavy substance users and feeling really turned off and maybe also just being like well if that's the formula that got them there i'm trying to go farther so i was really not I felt very alienated socially in, in high school because I was a complete nerd, but I was still cool. Like I skated and stuff, so I wasn't like completely like out of the loop. But I just would not smoke weed with people. It was just, and I, there were so many circumstances of of complete alienation because I did not get high with my friends. Um, and I'm trying to think about some good stories from times of social alienation because of my straight edge ideas <laughs> I, I know mean, I'm trying to think of stories too oh my god well I don't I really I mean I was just I used to eat my lunch in a in a, the basement with a bass guitar Oh, that is such a sad story. Tell no, us, but it wasn't sad because I literally had those. Remember those little green? Okay, this was like the ugliest iPod that ever came out. It was like the square one. Mm-hmm. Does it, do you remember the square one? Yeah, totally. Like an iPod Mini Square. You sat listening to music and ate your lunch. No, I sat listening over and over to Charles Mingus. Okay, because that was what I was on in, in senior year. And I would literally pack my lunch and never, like, bought food. That wasn't a part of my reality. And um, I would eat, like, my sandwich or leftovers. And I would transcribe Charles Mingus, literally figure out what he played, and then just try to play it back on this really shitty, like, plywood, like, upright base that the school had um that I convinced them to let me take home on the weekends too I got really into that but yeah I would literally sit by myself eating like a sandwich with like something awkward in it probably like beets and like <laughs> probably ate the most weird sandwiches because I put leftovers in between bread <laughs> oh my god <laughs> amazing <laughs> yeah and then just you know transcribe music and I never thought I would end up in music school because my approach to at least the double bass was so rudimentary because I picked it up in in um, my senior year. But then I ended up actually going to the Conservatory of Music at Oberlin for that because I just learned it so fast. It was interesting. But I also had a really close relationship with Frank, who was the photocopier, and he would help me print zines. That was cool. You know, that's so funny because I was just thinking of, I was like, what story do I, do I tell? And 
it's funny because I never, I never knew Frank. Like I knew who he was, right. obviously, because he was like the invisible labor of the school. Right. Um, but yeah, like I, my senior year, I like was just running around like trying to do like serious political organizing and like really all like you know you need to fucking have access to a printer if right. you're a, an activist or like whatever like right. you just are especially if you're like a little punk kid yeah. you're like i need to run off xeroxes this is the most important thing going on and if you don't let me do that then right. you are like standing with injustice right now <laughs> you know so i really like i really wanted to print like print off some copies of like something like a fundraiser that was going on probably moshing for mobilization which was like what we called the like punk shows that we did that were benefiting like new orleans trips and i you know i went in and i like was just acting normal went into the copy um the like main copy area which is also like the office where like all of the secretaries were and a math teacher who i oh my god was just the bane of my existence she like caught me and was like what are you printing and like looked at it and was like you know that you're not allowed to print this like in the school oh my and God. i like and i just remember like having this showdown with her and being like hmm like yeah, grab the copy grab the copy like run away <laughs> blah, 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 like whatever and ugh, it was just horrible like you know at, at, now when i look back i'm just like god okay like you know i went to this like really cushy like alternative public school and really wanted it to be like even more you know like radical than it was but like yeah at the time it just like seemed like the institution represented like the worst like kind of liberalism because it was like so unwilling to confront its own relationship to institutional racism and institutional classism like we were out there trying to figure out like what percentage of the school was on school lunch so that we could use that to like leverage and like, right. you know, change the admissions policy. Cause it's this like kind of school that has an admission policy and like you have to get interviewed in order to get in, like just all this different stuff anyway. And yeah, I, I mean, it was totally a liberal administration. I'd say that there were some really amazing radical thinkers on the faculty, but amazing. in terms of, yeah. yeah, an unbelievable big shout out to, you know, Nat Turner and Lev Moscow and, um, well, that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great history teachers, great art teachers, but yeah, they were at, at, at one point, you know, shutting down student organizing and not allowing students to bring in speakers, people who had knowledge to share. What an amazing dynamic to be, that you have these kids um, just trying taking, to learn. Just trying to learn and bring resources, <laughs> educational resources to their peers about radical and important thought around desegregation and about the ways that are that resources public resources tend to maintain status quo and hierarchy really important and you know this brings me to a thought that I've always had which is that once you leave school and you enter the world uh well I after leaving school entered pretty I'd say involuntarily the world of cultural marketing or I don't know if that's a term, but basically marketing things with culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, companies, not all, but many of which priority is profit and moving 
units, you know, pay, pay people to critique and sit there and, and tell you this is shit. This is, mm-hmm. this is great. This is awful. And then institutions, educational institutions, because they operate like states, will shut down some of the most valuable critical thinking and attention that students bring free of charge, meaning they're paying to be there and taking the time to literally pick apart the dynamic of your institution. And they're your consumer. So your consumer is there. Like this is more, I guess, related to if you're paying at a private university, but Mm -hmm. also, I mean, essentially students are feasibly your constituents or your, your consumers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you have the exact person that you're supposed to be, you know, um, working with to disseminate knowledge product whatever and they're taking literally hours out of their week to give you reports and critical thought around that it's the most valuable thing that somebody who's trying to evolve and and better a company or institution could possibly want and somehow these institutions try to suppress it by any means necessary yeah, I mean, it almost makes you think that maybe the students aren't the consumers, but they're the labor. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the intellectual laborers that make the school function and right. without which the school would collapse. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and that's absolutely, a, it's, a, it's a good point because a lot of the time you hear, um, you know, please don't let this distract from your studies. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So don't let this activism and critical thought around the, the actual world that you live in, even if it's like a microcosm, like a little micro state world reality, mm-hmm. which is what schools and universities are. Um, don't let it, don't think about that. Just focus on the books within that world. It's like weird. I mean, what do you do when, uh, when you are you hear from a bunch of students we want black and brown professors we don't want these white professors anymore right what do you do when your students say we want black we want more black and brown peers like we don't want to just go to school with other white kids or we don't want to we want to go to school with kids that that reflect some of it the same cultural and historical experiences of colonization and and other you know, historical experiences as we do so that we can actually learn better? Or what if this classroom was, you know, robust and and had people from varying perspectives so that everybody could learn better? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was always the strongest, I think, argument when it came to the, is- the issues of um, diversifying the student body at Beacon was like, it'll definitely improve the quality of education here. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was such... Uh, resistance to that yeah i mean partially because a lot of actually the t- and this is this is where it came down to it it wasn't just the immediate like hi- hierarchical administration that was against a more inclusive school in the case of our high school it was like it was a lot of the faculty were very against it thinking basically saying like i've come from school like i i've taught at schools that are like way worse off have way less resources which literally means like i poor. came from a poor a poor school that was mostly communities of color right um and yeah like they would basically be like i don't want to teach a remedial class it's so horribly racist. Yeah, and, and the and the actual dynamic we also learned during this time of how 
the chain of school, the chain of your education as an individual goes is you're sent to a zone in your elementary school, which means that if you're born and raised in a poor community, the real estate um, uh, funding, the real estate tax is, um, is, a, is part of how uh, public school funding is decided. So if you come from a poor community, the real estate tax and the funding for those schools is going to be lower, um, and you're zoned to that to that school. So, so if you come from a disadvantaged and poor community, your school is likely to reflect that. Then by the time you get to middle school, you're potentially competing with other students to get into specialized schools coming from an already disadvantaged place in terms of, let's say, reading level and math or whatever the standardized test scoring, threes and fours versus twos and ones and twos. So if you're, you know, doing ones and twos in elementary school, the likelihood of you getting into a quote, good middle school is low, and then the likelihood of you getting into a high school that's specialized and not zoned because we only um, in our in our current system, or at least when when I was setting this, I don't know if it's changed. Um, you only really have the ability to move into schools that are outside of your neighborhood, starting in middle school. So, even if your parents are really trying to get you into specific kinds of educational institutions, you're really locked down to your neighborhood um, for your first, your most developmental and first years. So it's sort of a chain effect that's part of how the inequality is maintained through education in the city. Um, and what a what an incredible conversation that we're even having conversations about good schools and bad schools. Like, oh my god, I that's know. That's like it's like <laughs> if you actually remove yourself for like, let's say we are like in outer space having this conversation. Like, what the fuck is a good school and a bad school? Like all schools should have like I mean I guess that's the idea behind standardizing them but it's just so doesn't work I mean just why not just demand the impossible we've talked about this before mm-hmm. yep <laughs> that all schools should be highly resourced and excellent and adapt ad- adapt to their their constituents as well um, definitely and the needs of their their students so on that note, so I just wanted to interview Ripley Soprano about mm-hmm. their tattoos. Oh. One reads school <laughs> in poke stick and poke script <laughs> on their um oh I don't even want to give an identifier. Wrist. Never mind. <laughs> Let's just say somewhere on the, body, on the left side of their body. Uh-huh. And on the right side it says kills. Hmm. So School kills. School kills tatted on your body. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I I wrote this piece for Mask like maybe a year and a half ago that was about um, my experience as like a little youth agitator in the school system. And basically, yeah, it was like a Foucauldian little, it it was kind of about like anarchist pedagogy. And when I mean that, I just mean like anarchist, um, anarchist ideology in relation to the science of teaching, like, you know, how, how your, what your methodology is as an educator. And I basically was like, oh, you know, like one way of thinking about the school system is like, 
this is not a straightforward answer to your question, but um, the one way of thinking about like how school should be is that they should all, you know, everyone should be sitting at these like round tables and calling their teachers by their first names or whatever. Mm. And like, th- that's like a progressive, you know, approach to the educational system. And of course, like that's the kind of access to education that I had for the most part as like a white person from, you know, who would like went to, basically all like you know some of the best schools in the city um within the public system at least and then there's this up this totally other kind of like realm which is like all schools are meant to like reify the status quo to like enforce inequality like it's not just that there is inequality in the school system but that the school as an institution is meant to like produce stratification and like produce different classes of citizens right um so that there can be a marginalized labor force that is exploitable right and that there is like an upper class right and you know yeah which is something that i actually i deeply believe and i think that the school is actually one of the least critiqued institutions in our society because it's seen as like an inherently good institution that like everyone should have access to as opposed to so there's all these all the advocacy around schooling is save our schools it's not like school it's not like the prison abolition movement where there are people who are like this institution is inherently fucked up it's like no actually the school system is inherently Inherently fucked fucked up up. it's not just like broken it is built this way yes um so that's kind of where the idea comes from so school kills school kills right but also it's like uh so what so as we wrap up our our time on this podcast um what what can we um give a sneak preview of of lesson number eight and what do yeah building alternatives building alternatives yeah so basically there's like you know there's a bunch of readings and there's some videos but the unit activity is basically like let's let's think about society the society that we want to live in and let's like prefigure it so let's like think about it what's the world that we want to live in how do they deal with harm? How are people educated? How do people feed themselves? What does that look like? Right. Um, so basically, the unit activity is to draw a picture and then draw that draw a picture, and then your peer also draws a picture, and then you have to combine the two. So maybe we could just do that uh, verbally. Verbally, I mean, absolutely. Um, I'm just trying to think about my most cherished uh, educational moments. Um, in and outside of the classroom were definitely predicated on a strong relationship to a, an, a person who spent a lot of time and has a lot of expertise in a, a certain field. Um, mm-hmm. And I have deep respect for the process of research that a lot of academics have had to go through um, in their doctorate programs or a deep, deep level of respect because I think it's actually really amazing that there are people who have the drive to sit down and take on a topic for five to eight years. Um, and I think that if there is, if there was a way to connect people, experts, and people who spend lots of time thinking about really specific topics to um, young people in a way that what didn't cost money mm-hmm. and also it's like interesting what what people choose to research 
because there's all this like con- concepts of academic integrity of like it not like needing to actually have a purpose outside of the development of the knowledge itself but a lot of really uh, my favorite scholars um, academics and teachers basically have found ways to take take what they've learned and make it very applicable to something like Ruas, right? Something like a, a young person's creative mind and passion for um, c- creating. Um, so I think it would be really cool to, to have more professors on advisory boards on in streetwear brands. Mm. Whoa. That was so specific, but like, that's my little verbal picture of like uh, new, the new world. Damn. <laughs> it's just like everybody, every streetwear brand advisory board just pick two scholars just like you would pick you know a uh, a defense committee like oh my god wow right like you can't put this out this crappy shitty bullshit meaningless ahistorical apolitical <laughs> concept <Go in. laughs> or clothing or um project without having experts on what you're trying to emote through this art Mm. on your board totally and i know um that the brujas advisory board has some really um incredible experts on the topics of um, labor and um, labor Mm -hmm. organizing as well as political economy um jazz studies and um the history of new york city skateboarding there's no professor in that but if there was one we have him people who people who have dedicated their lives to those things i think that that's professor enough you know yeah exactly so yeah professor in the streets too what what about you what's your verbal picture oh my god i I was hoping that you would skip me um you can skip i'm gonna skip (laughs) mine is mine is too big to too big for this too big for this room no way what about how small is this um Take a skill, then go to that little um, the little app in your phone, the one that lets you like type things. I think it's called Notes. Notes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and be like, workshop on this topic, this time, this place, this date, and then post it on your Instagram, and then start there. That's perfect. Because literally, that's kind of how Bruja started. Yes, I totally so, agree. As an educational platform that has done um educational stuff uh, educational platform that's done educational stuff huh? <laughs> oh, those bitches are really smart but <laughs> we should really we should fuck with them. <laughs> um that has done like workshops around um native plants and urban uh indigenous uh ancestral relationship kombucha ableton live nine uh what the else? political economy of sneaker sneaker uh, sneakers sneakers trading yeah. um and uh, materialist feminism material feminism <laughs> i mean and then you know t- to whatever we feel like we need to learn we're gonna be teaching ourselves 
and hoping to bring others along on that journey. So thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Brujas World World. (laughs) on Mass.fm. Thank you and have a good night.